Patrick Mason. Welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Good. No problem. Glad to have you on tonight. Looking forward to this chance to sit down and talk to you about your book, Planted. I know you've done several interviews already, and uh, I hope maybe tonight will be a little different. I hope the listeners to the podcast will realize that maybe we're going a few a few different directions than, than things you've touched on in other places. But, but your book, Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt, maybe just for a moment, because I, I think there's a lot of Mormons kind of swimming in this topic at the moment, and, and I just want to get maybe your thoughts on, and then we'll jump into a little bit more about who you are, and we'll jump into some questions, but, but your thoughts on what was the impetus for this book? What was the reason for like, okay, there has to be this book, and I, and I absolutely think you hit on some new ground in, in this book, and I've already went down the street to a neighbor who had a son-in-law who's kind of left the church. He stopped wearing his garments. He's withdrawn from activity and I went down and just handed the book to his father-in-law and said look man just read chapter one of this book and then pass the book along to this guy and 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 I hope that this could be helpful maybe just talk for a moment about what was the impetus for the book itself yeah thanks I mean in, in a lot of ways that that story encapsulates it I mean I I think every single person in the church uh, at least everybody that I've met knows somebody is related to somebody is married to somebody um, or home teaches somebody who is uh, who has left the church or is uh, trying to negotiate and think about what is their relationship to the church. I just think we're in a moment right now uh, where where the where Mormonism is is going through some transitions and there's a lot of things that that go into that with cultural change with the internet uh, with uh, generational change there there's a lot of things that all seem to be happening right now in the 21st century and it was never a book I intended to write I've I've got my own academic writing I've got plenty of projects uh, that that keep me busy but this um, I had been invited uh, to to go around and, and give some firesides and talks I'd gone around with Richard and Claudia Bushman to a couple of events and and just hearing people's stories, hearing people, you know, we always open it up to, to questions and answer to mostly to, to just discussion um, because I'm not sure that anyone has all the answers and so I think just talking about these things matters a lot and, and as I heard people tell their stories, um, it just became more and more evident to me that Look, maybe I did. I certainly don't have all the answers. I, you know, I, I can't answer everybody's um, questions. Certainly can't solve everybody's problems. As I say in the book, I, I think most people don't want to be solved, uh, but they do want to be heard. And and I think that um, I, I thought that based on my professional training, some of my personal experiences, some of the the things that I'd been thinking about and that were in my heart, maybe maybe I could say something. And so really for me, this was a, a kind of vocational thing. I, I felt compelled to do it uh, in in a sense, and and so it became um, in in some ways me me reaching out uh, to to the church and, and to people that I love. Awesome, awesome. And I, I want to say, I, I've gathered from, I think you mentioned in this book, too, that, that you've really never had a faith crisis along the lines of the people you're trying to reach out to. But I just want to say, first and foremost, Patrick, you come off as very empathetic and understanding to to the struggle that, that I and, and the listeners of the podcast and the, and the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of members of the church that are out there who are going through this, what you call a faith transition, and I just want to say I appreciate from the bottom of my heart the 
the ability you've had to, to empathize with us and to understand that this has really been difficult. And I just want to say thank you. Well, thanks. I mean, it, it actually means a lot to me to, to hear that. It's, it's gratifying because you're right. I, I haven't been through this kind of profound existential faith crisis. Um, I'm one of the, either lucky or unlucky ones, depending on which way you want to, want to think about it. I mean, and it, it certainly doesn't make my faith journey, my path, any better or any worse than anybody else's. It's just mine. And, and everybody else has, has their own path. And, and I think, you know, we, we all have different stuff in this life. In my family, we've just gone through some serious medical stuff and, and th- that I've been dealing with. And, and people have rallied around me and loved and supported me, even if they haven't experienced exactly what, what my family and I have experienced. And I, I think that's just what we're called to do as Christians. If, if I haven't had your exact experience, and, and who has, uh, then what I'm called to do is, is to show empathy and charity and, 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 and love. And, and so th- we do the best we can. That's what it means to be called to be Christians. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, just want to hit for just a second. Just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are. For, for the one listener who's listening who's never heard of Patrick <laughs> Mason, would you just give him maybe just a brief uh, bio of yourself so that he gets a feel for who you are? Uh, well, I, in, in most respects, I'm just an ordinary guy, I guess. I mean, I, uh, I, uh, by, by virtue of my professional position, I, I have the opportunity to, to do a lot of things and speak about Mormonism in lots of contexts. So, so I hold what's called the Howard W. Hunter Chair in Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, uh, which, which is a terrific opportunity. There, there's a handful of these Mormon Studies programs at secular universities around the country, and, and I'm lucky enough to, to have this position. I uh, got born and raised in Utah, I went to BYU for my undergraduate degree, uh, went to the University of Notre Dame for, for my uh, graduate degrees in history and peace studies. Uh, I'm an American religious historian. That's, that's who I am professionally. So, so I care about these things. And then, and then I write a lot about, about Mormonism. So married, have four kids now. And, and um, this, uh, like I said, this, this book was Separate from a lot of my uh, professional work as a historian, uh, it's not the kind of thing that goes on my CV and not the kind of things that, that I necessarily share with all my colleagues, but it's, it's something that, that was important to me personally. Awesome, awesome. So let's, let's jump into it. You've got a section in the book where you speak about uh, Doubting Thomas, and, and I actually got your book on, uh, on, uh, from Deseret Book as an MP3 first and listened to it and then went back through the book and, and, Kind of just hit some of the high points that I, I listened to, listen to. And in this section, Doubting Thomas, you kind of talk about Thomas and his experience and kind of relate it to those of us in the church that are doubting. And I, and I want to ask you a question, which I, and I want to frame it this way. Leadership within Mormonism has, has tended to pose knowing as the end goal and and there's been several talks, um, one from Elder Uchtdorf in the last conference where he said, you know, if all, if all you have is hope, that's that's a great start. There's Elder Holland uh, talked about belief is a precious word. But even in those talks, which I think just go a long way from the rhetoric and in, in the, the teachings and the, the talks that we've given in the past to kind of opening the door for a more more of a comfortability with doubt, there's this idea that, that hope is a good place to start or belief is a good thing to have along the way, but that we all need to work towards knowing. And what I think most doubters feel, Patrick, is that 
they started off knowing. They started off going to testimony meetings and saying, I know with every fiber of my being the church is true. And now that they've, they either are processing information differently or they've learned new information, which is, which is very different from the narrative they grew up with. They've left knowing and ended up at hope. And hope feels like the only place they have left. And yet we make hope feel like it's only a place to start. Would you maybe talk for just a moment about hope and your thoughts on how we framed it as compared to maybe where those struggling with faith, maybe that's the only thing they're hanging mm-hmm. on with. Yeah. And uh, what do you thought? What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you you pointed out that that little Thomas section is just a two page thing, but it's actually my favorite part of the book. Um, in some ways, it encapsulates the the whole book or what I'm trying to to do. And and you're right. You know, we I, I think it's actually uh, a wonderful thing that we value and prize spiritual knowledge, what we call knowledge uh, in the church. I mean, it, this goes back to the to the very early roots of the religion. This sense, the, the the audacious claim that Joseph Smith has that we can know God, that we can reach up and touch the heavens, that through revelation we can part the veils. I mean, that's that's a pretty bold and audacious claim. It's one of the things I love about Mormonism, uh, and and I have absolutely no doubt speaking of doubt that 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 is uh that that kind of language of knowledge of sure experience of assurity that that absolutely describes the experience of many many people in the history of of our movement i I just have full confidence in, in that that that's their experience but it's certainly not true of everybody uh and 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 we hear that more today maybe than ever. I don't think it's ever been true of everybody in, in the history of Mormonism. Sometimes we look back at the pioneers and think that they were all, you know, um, all had visions of God and so forth, and that's just not true. You know, I mean, they they had the same spiritual struggles and doubts uh, that uh, that we do today, and and so I don't think. Um, you know, it, it sometimes looks a little different in the rearview mirror than when you're in the when you're going through it. But I do think that we have um, all of our language about spiritual knowledge and our expectations about knowledge and our I know culture that gets reinforced every month in testimony meeting and twice a year in general conference. As positive and wonderful as that is for those people who can express it that way, it's a it's a one-size-fits-all approach to religious knowledge or religious experience, I should say, that just doesn't fit everybody. Not, spiritual experience is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. We come in all different shapes and sizes, and people have very different experiences with the divine. And so, so to try and fit everybody into an I know box means that, you know, a lot of people just can't say that with any kind of integrity. And, and that's okay. The, you know, the three cardinal Christian virtues are faith, hope, and charity. Uh, knowledge isn't in that triumvirate. And, and so I, I really believe, and in recent years have really come to value the Christian virtue of hope. I, I think it kind of gets drowned out. I think we pay a lot of attention to faith. I think we pay a lot of attention to charity, but not to hope. But in a lot of ways, I think it's really the essence of Christianity, this deep hope. And Paul talks about it all the time. I mean, other people in the scriptures, this, this hope in a new life in Christ. And, um, look, I'm, I'm one, I'm enough of a 
rationalist. I've, you know, been educated in the academy, all these kinds of things. It's hard for me to, to talk about spiritual knowledge in the same way I talk about secular knowledge. I'm pretty judicious in my use of that phrase, I know. But I can speak with a lot of confidence about the things that I hope for. And I think that's one of the gifts of Christianity. I, th- I think it's, it's a, a gift to, to prize that hope. And to say, in some ways, that's that's the essence of a relationship with a God that we do not see, uh, but but that we hope is there. And and so hope is not just the early stage; it's not the the kind of baby steps. Uh, I think the our whole spiritual experience is shot through with hope uh, from beginning to end. I think it's the essence, part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Gotcha. And so and you so it sounds like you're saying like we're, we're maybe not. We're maybe not quite framing this in a way that encapsulates everyone yet. That we just, we're just, we're, we have some shortcomings in the language that we're using, and maybe we're framing it in the way that that individual person sees it. We just maybe need some more experience with this to to kind of open up the door to recognizing that others feel things in different ways. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I what I see sometimes in Mormonism is still um, some insecurities and some vulnerabilities that that I think. Uh, we still suffer a kind of collective trauma from our history of of being beat up so much uh, physically, of course, in the 19th century, but but kind of publicly and and so forth. Uh, so much ridicule and and so many people heaping scorn on the things that that we proclaim to believe. That I think the the I know culture is one response to that. Again, I. I absolutely affirm that that is a real expression of, of spiritual experience for many, many people. But it's also become the discourse that we have in the church. It's the language we have in the church, I think, partly to hedge against these insecurities we have about everybody who's always um, who's always ridiculing our, our beliefs. And so we feel if there's any crack in the foundation, if, if we say, oh, I'm not sure, actually, I believe, I hope, instead of I know, that that somehow shows some kind of weakness or vulnerability that opens up to critique from the outside. Uh, but I think as we mature as as we get more confidence as a people and hopefully as individuals, then that confidence will will put us in a place where we can accept a diversity of voices and a diversity of experience. And you know what? It's okay if the person next to me in the pew can't say I know. It's okay if I know. It's it's okay if I can't say that I know. It it doesn't rupture the fabric of this entire tradition. It, it's not a betrayal of my great-great-grandparents who crossed the plains. It's simply an honest affirmation of where I'm at in my relationship with God. And, and I think as, as a people, as we get more confidence, we'll be able to hear the diversity of voices and experiences within our tradition and affirm them all as, um, as, as just authentic experiences and not as something threatening. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. You talk about this vulnerability, and I want to kind of hit on this a little more, and I think maybe you've answered maybe this question to some extent just in the previous answer you gave, but I know you talk throughout the book of almost kind of pleading for the for the, the doubter or the person struggling with a faith transition to just kind of hang around, and, and you lay out a bunch of reasons for them to, to stay and for them to see beauty in the restoration but I know that in, in the, when, you know, when the tire meets the road in application, when I go into my ward on Sundays and I'm well read, 
and and I'm very adamant about standing my ground when someone says something that's going to marginalize or hurt another, and I raise my hand. I do it kindly, and I say, I disagree with you. Here's my point of view. I can tell you, Patrick, I'm in a great ward. I wouldn't trade my ward for any other within, you know, I live in St. George, Utah. I wouldn't trade my ward for anything within three miles, which is a whole lot of buildings, <laughs> right? And and yet there's definitely a pushback and a resistance. Even when, even if you share a lesson and, and the lesson has facts in it, if those facts make the saints uncomfortable, right away we as a culture go to things like the spirits left the room, you know, you must be, you must be, you know, under the influence of the adversary. You, I've gotten those things and lessons before simply because I'm, I'm pushing these folks just a little beyond their comfort zone. And I'm not going anything dramatic. I would just talk about how the, the race ban ended and how the gospel topic essay says that, you know, present leaders have disavowed the, the theories of past leaders. Things like that get pushback. And so my question is for people like me, I mean, I'm in for the long haul. But for a lot of members, they're they're right on the fence and they're ready to walk out. And what they need is some breathing room and some space. Any thoughts from you on on how we create some space where we can have a more authentic, a more vulnerable discussion and dialogue in in Sunday meetings? Well, I, you know, you you hit it on the head. I'm because I I think that's what's happening. I think there are a lot of people who want to stay, a lot of people who want to make it work, but who just feel like when they go to church on Sunday, they're just beating their head against the wall, and or that things are said, or that they are silenced in a way, and they're not able to to say things that that have a kind of authenticity. Um, and you know, I I don't have. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think there are ways to, to, to do that that aren't very helpful and aren't very constructive and, and to become um, uh, where, where you can actually uh, aid and abet in your own marginalization. And this would be true of any community that you're part of. I mean, it's, you know, you just can't go in and stomp on the things that are precious to, to other people, even if you, you feel the strength of your conviction. So I think we always have to, to bring a kind of humility and charity to all these kinds of interactions. But I think we can also expect better of our fellow saints. And it is disappointing when, when they seem unreceptive to truth. Even truth that's on LDS.org, like you said. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And, and for me, it's one of the reasons, you know, it's one of the main reasons I wrote the book, actually. You know, a lot of people have talked about it and a lot of the marketing has been, it's for people who are doubting and stuff like that. Just as much, I wanted to write the book for everybody else in your ward in St. George. For them to read it, for for your bishop, Relief Society president, home teacher, for for the people in the pews to read it and get some sense of what you're going through or other people are going through, and that when you raise those things, you're not doing it to throw the church under the bus, to throw them under the bus, to throw their great grandparents under the bus. You're doing it from a kind of a, a deep and legitimate and genuine place, and this is part of of your discipleship. And and can we have these kinds of conversations? Um, not that we, you know. I, I don't think, again, the church is a place uh, for um, open debate, per se. It's not a graduate seminar. There, I think there are, um, there are kind of approaches and, and tones and modes that we can work in in the three-hour block and others that are less appropriate. But I, I just 
really wish that we had a little bit more space. I mean, I ran into this. I teach gospel doctrine in my ward, and and I was teaching about uh, Second Nephi five and the the skin of, of darkness and and all this kind of stuff, and trying to do some alternative readings, and and I got some pushback too, you know. And and fortunately, I've got good enough relationships with people. I was able to finish the lesson and then pulled some of these people aside privately in the hall, and we talked about it. I don't think I persuaded anybody, but but at least we were able to talk about it, and 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 then we just keep going. Um, I don't know, Bill. I mean, I, I really don't have any perfect answers. I don't think we can wave, wave a magic wand. I just really believe that in in keeping that, that, that you keep coming, that you keep having those conversations. You help people move in. You help people move out. You teach their kids in primary. You, you do these kinds of things, and you build the kind of social and spiritual capital so that people have the trust that when you say things, they know that you're coming from a genuine place. I mean, and, and then you just hope in, in the angels of people's better nature. Um, so so that's that's where my hope is, going back to hope. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've got a good friend who just today sat down with me <clears throat> who said that he was teaching the 16, 17-year-olds and uh, had been teaching in the calling for six months, and, and these kids loved him. I mean, the one kid, I'll tell you the experience first, he – he gets uh, called in Sunday and he's told that he's being released after only six months because a parent or two went to the bishop and said, my son or daughter are learning these things in Sunday school and these aren't things that I'm comfortable with, even though they were just like facts, like Joseph's using a seer stone and, and, you know, here's these gospel topic essays and here's, here's how we prep ourselves for deeper thinking in the future so that these things don't, don't catch us off guard. And one of the kids sends a text to his mother and says, if, if this guy isn't teaching the class, then I'm not coming to church anymore. I, my, my point being is that there's really good, thoughtful people with, with real deep emotion attached to, to helping the saints move forward. And yet we have a culture that really is so resistant to letting go of, of folklore and false assumptions and, and, and I get it. I think that's human nature in general, but we've, we've really created kind of a stronger tangent of that within Mormonism. And, and I just think you talking about it within the book, and as you point out, going around and having conversations, just the more these conversations at the forefront, it just seems like progress sooner or later just has to start to break forward. I, th- I think you're right. And, and look, this is, I, I do chalk a lot of it up to human nature and this is generational. And look, if you were raised with a certain way of thinking and speaking and doing, and you've been doing this for 50 or 60 or 70 years and it's served you pretty well and it has contributed to deep and genuine experiences that you've had with God and somebody comes in and starts talking a different way and teaching your kids and grandkids something else, that's threatening, you know? And uh, it's... Uh so it's hard. I mean, I, I do think we, we just have different perspectives and different generations and, and different modes of thinking and speaking in the church. And, and so the question is, can we, can we tolerate that? Can we do it? I mean, we're, we're really good at conflict avoidance in the church. We're really good at passive aggressive stuff in the church. And, and we need to just get beyond that. If we want to have really healthy, mature relationships between individuals, and within wards, within what we oftentimes call a ward family, we have to sometimes be able to, to disagree with one another and, and to work these things out. I think generally the best way to do it is privately, not in front of 30 and 40 people, 30 or 40 people in, in, in the context of a class, but, 
but but can we can we do that and and when somebody challenges the kinds of things that we're teaching or saying can we look first at ourselves like Jesus says and can can we ask ourselves okay what have i done or said that that hurts them why are they offended what is it that, that I've said or done that's that's so threatening to them. If we can walk in their shoes a little bit, see through their eyes, and then and then go to them as brothers and sisters, as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, and hopefully have that kind of on, honest conversation. Say, here's where I'm coming from. I'm pulling this material from LDS.org, right? I'm not I'm not making this up. This is why I think it's important. This is why I think it's important for your 16 year old kid to to know this stuff. Um, again, some people are just going to resist that. Some people are going to shut down. Um, but I have confidence and, and a lot of experience, both personally and from what other people tell me, that that uh, hearts and minds can change. Yeah, yeah, and that's good. That's really good. And again, I, I would just emphasize that just having these conversations, just you writing a book and you and I talking and you going around and – and answering questions and having an open dialogue and at every place you go, you know, maybe maybe five of the doubters brought their friend with them or brought mm-hmm. their 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 mother with them or brought their brother with them. Um, and just to have the chance to kind of hear these conversations and why they make sense. Yeah, and, 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 let's, let's, talk, and let's not forget, I mean, sure. the book is published by Deseret Book. I mean, this wasn't some fly-by-night thing or independent publishing. I mean, this this is Deseret Book, and, and it went through all the stages of review and, and all these kinds of things. And, and so this is, for, for me, that was a big win, and, and I hope that and, – and frankly – the reason I wanted to publish it with Deseret Book was so that it had the imprimatur. There's a lot of people who won't read anything related to the church unless it's a Deseret Book uh, publication. And so to, so to be able to say to your bishop, your stake president, your home teaching family, hey, look, I got this thing at Deseret Book. Why don't you take a look at it? That, that meant a lot to me. And, and frankly, I give – I give them a lot of credit for sort of sticking their necks out because, as you say, I mean, I, I talk about some things in here that uh, we haven't always talked about in, in the church. It's funny that you say that because when I gave the, the book away, I, I went and got four copies and I, I went down the road. And as I was telling you about, I gave this book to a gentleman whose son-in-law is, is kind of drifted off into inactivity for these very reasons and I cuffed it with, hey, I've got a book I want to give to you. Uh, just so you know, this book is published at Deseret Book, and I did it for that exact reason. It gives it kind of a stamp of approval and so that this person sees it as a trustworthy source. And so I, I too, just want to add in, I'm grateful that, that you went that route and they were they were open to doing that. Um, I want to talk for a moment about contraries. And it's a quote that I came across last week, and I, and I find it beautiful. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, he says, quote, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And I love that because there's this idea that in order for us to kind of discern truth, we have to have opposing viewpoints and perspectives within our view. And and I worry sometimes that the church at higher levels really doesn't want you to have that. And and I'll give one example. I'm not I'm not trying to be critical of, of a leader, but but Elder Oaks in the last general conference talked about loyal opposition. And talked about how questions are honored, but opposition is not. And yet, I don't know any other way, Patrick, and, and, and all the people right now who are struggling, who, who don't, don't feel like there's any space for them, they want to be heard. They want to be validated. They want to, they want to at least, you no, know, they don't have to have somebody agree with them. I don't have to have somebody say, Bill, you're right and I'm wrong. What I need is somebody to say that my perspective has a seat at the table and that and that the the points that I'm making will be considered. 
and yet we have no way in the church to to have our voice out there and now we have like leadership kind of essentially saying like like back off a little bit and and be be more in agreement and do not dissent in the route, and I'm, and I'm hesitant. I know this is going to come off as like, why is Bill stammering through this whole episode? But it's because this is a really nervous topic to kind of cover. But, but they tell you, you go to your bishop and you ask him, and then you go to your stake president and you ask him. And if that doesn't answer your question, go to the area authority. And if that doesn't answer your question, go to the uh, 70. And if that doesn't answer your question, then take it to a member of the quorum of the 12. And then if that doesn't work, write the first presidency. But I don't know if the brethren understand that every step of the way, those guys are much more likely to support and push away me and support them rather than take what I'm saying at the actual value of what's being said. Any thoughts? Like how do we get to a place where we can just like raise our hand and say, look, I disagree with that. You're welcome to keep holding that position, but I just want you to know my personal perspective is that we're hurting people. What do we do with that? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are concerned about that loyal opposition talk, and, and Elder Oaks isn't the first to, to express that. It's been expressed by um, by previous church leaders as well. And and I, do, I confess I don't know exactly what they mean by that because I I have confidence that they they understand that not everybody thinks exactly alike within the church, and I don't think realistically that they expect everybody to to be in lockstep. Um, so. So, so I, you know, I suspect maybe they have something in in mind, something like ordained women or something, but but I, I don't know exactly, and we we sometimes don't get great definitions about what they mean by by some of these particular phrases. Um, I I do think it's it's a question that a lot of people feel that that there's just no place for them to to speak out honestly and and with integrity, and 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 that's. Um, that's what hurts people because when they when they feel like they, they can't live a life of integrity within a particular institution, they say, I'm not sure that I want to associate with that institution, especially when that institution taught me to live a life of integrity, you know. Uh, and and so it becomes really difficult for people. I, the, of course, the, the Internet has changed everything. I mean, what you and I are doing right now. Uh, wasn't available to, to people, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, the, the, the kinds of blogs that, that the people have, uh, the, the, the ways that people are able to express themselves, um, in, in private, semi-private, and, in, and even public forums, and to express honest, uh, doubt and disagreements and, and, and oftentimes couched, as you just said it, look, I, I'm not interested in challenging the, the church leadership or overthrowing the church and, and I sustain them, um, you know, in, in, in their callings. Uh, I, I actually do think that we've got more space for that now than ever, but it sure doesn't feel that way to a lot of people on the ground. It doesn't feel that way on Sunday. It doesn't feel that way when you're talking to a bishop who isn't sympathetic. Um, and, and partly this, this comes down to, to a, a, um, a church that's led by laity. Uh, it's leadership roulette, uh, where, where some people, you know, you get a great bishop and then you get a bishop who, who will shut you down. Um, and, uh, you know, same thing with apostles. Some apostles you feel like you connect with, and, and that you can uh, you can have that kind of relationship with, and others that you feel shut down by the kinds of, of uh, language that they use. Uh, I, I, again, I'm not sure that I have a solution because I'm not sure there is a, a, a solution here. Uh, this we, we live in a church with 
with just the fact is there's a lot of diversity within the church and from varying levels of leadership from from bishops all the way up to apostles and prophets uh we've sometimes been been given uh messages that uh uh, that discourage uh, or downplay that diversity. And I understand what's behind that impulse. Uh, again, feeling threatened, feeling like they want to keep purity of the doctrine, purity of the faith, that they don't want a bunch of schismatic movements. One of Mormonism's great virtues over its nearly two centuries has been its unity. But that has also come at a cost. And throughout our history, there have been people who, who just felt like uh, that, that they couldn't do it. I hope that we can create a church that has more space, where more people feel like they can do it, where they don't feel like they're broken on on the altar of conformity. Um, but it's uh, for a lot of people, it's just really tough. Yeah, and in. Again, I get it. I feel like we're going to go through this whole list, and you're going to say, "Hey, I don't, I don't have the perfect answer right. that fixes this tomorrow." <laughs> but man, I, I'm telling you, I'm just listening to you talk, and I'm like, "Yes, if if that was ten members of my ward, if if, you, if I could clone ten of you and put you in my ward, like ten of us could create that space. Like we would still allow the other people to have the other side of the uh, point of view, but but just to like have each other support each other and say, look, you know, brother so and so's got a valid point, sister so and so's making a good a good point here when she talks about this idea. It, it's it's really a matter of there being more than just one of us in every ward, and it feels that way right yeah. now. I know a lot of people I talk to who are who are either thinking about leaving or withdrawn membership of the church said they were tired of feeling alone. They were tired of feeling that they were the only one in their ward. Who, who was thinking this way and that nobody else was giving them that kind of space. And so you just saying some of this stuff, even though there is no overnight answer, it's just beautiful to hear, to hear you talk about things this way because it's, it's, it's literally manna to, to those of us who are having a hard time. I, uh, I want to talk, and again, I know I'm also asking probably the same three questions over and over again. And I'm giving the but same, I'm trying same to, three what's answers. That? I'm giving the yeah, same three answers. So. <laughs> and that's, good. that's okay because each of these are coming from a different angle. And at each, in each step of the way, I just want to say thank you because you're, you're validating that these are things that we just need to start talking about and, and just kind of deal with and recognize that, that it may make us uncomfortable and it may lead to us having to consider doing things a little differently than what we've done them in the past but that this is really the only healthy way to go if we're going to keep these folks. And, the, and these aren't folks who just you know, decided one day they wanted to quit. You, you mentioned this in the book. These aren't people who just want to sin. Yeah. These are people who have struggled deeply for years at times and certainly for months and at the very least – trying to work through how this all adds up and what does it mean and and if they can change the narrative in their mind to still fit maybe uh, maybe talk for just a second about the deep the deep struggle that this is for those who no longer can frame the church the way it's being posed to them yeah i mean i think that's one of the things that we just have to to acknowledge and we we have to listen to people i mean i i um I, I frame this in the context of our baptismal covenants that, that we make and that are recorded in Mosiah, that we comfort the, uh, those that stand in need of comfort, but that we mourn with those that mourn. And when people are in pain, when people are struggling, um, you know, our baptismal covenant isn't to second-guess it. 
isn't to, to just say buck up, you know, uh, and, you know, read your scriptures and go to church and pray some more. Uh, our baptismal covenant, our, our, our first response is, is to mourn with them that, uh, and, and to recognize that, that this is not easy for people. Um, look, I mean, I'll, I'll grant that, that there, there are some people who, you know, kind of the, First contrary thing they see that they're out of here, right? And um, and there, there does seem to be a bit of a. Um, I mean, I hate hate to say this, but 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 for some, it it, it seems a, a, a bit shallow. But I think for most people that I talk to, that's just not their experience. I mean, th- they are serious about this. They've been serious about the church. They've served missions. They've been in callings. Uh, you know, and this this is hard. It is wrenching for them. Mormonism. Uh, goes deep in the bones, and it is deep in our family structures. It it it's a it's a religion that that calls on kind of every part of who we are, and so when when that and it's not just and I think this is one of the things that, that's hard for sometimes people who are outside the church to really understand. This isn't just about believing a few things, right? This isn't about a set of propositional beliefs. This, this is a, a culture, a people, a family, a tribe. This is, I mean, this is who we are. And, and when those things get, get rocked and, and sometimes shattered, um, then, then people are left looking around and, and they don't know where to start uh, be, because they had invested almost everything in terms of their personal identity in um, in Mormonism, and when that falls apart, they, they just don't know where to go. So, I, so I think our first response has to be to acknowledge the depth and sincerity of of the pain, the loneliness that people feel, the struggle, the confusion, uh, and. And, and we reach out to them, we, we mourn with them, we love them, we do our best to comfort them. Um, uh, you know, Job's friends who come and sit in silence with him, we don't always just come with a ready, pat answer. Um, and I, I think that has to be our first response. Then can we, you know, and then I think we have to listen to people, right? What are their concerns? Um, that, that's why a, a kind of a formulaic set of answers, oh, if you do X, Y, or Z, then, then your faith will be just fine. Um, I do think that some of those formulas, I mean, that they work in general, but for people's particular struggles in their particular lives, um, you have to listen to where they're at, and then you have to be able to respond uh, in, in like manner. And if you don't have the answers, don't give bad answers. Um, don't give crappy answers. Um, either give no answer or go and, and do some, some homework yourself so that you can meet them where, where they need you to be. Um, I, I just think that that's, that's the essence of ministry. That's, that's what it means to minister to another person, not to a problem, um, not to see them as a problem that needs to be solved, but to see them as a person who needs to be loved. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm trying to wrestle in my mind whether I just say this directly or not. I'll try to maybe maybe just hint at it, but I just want to like go along with what you're saying, which is that there's been recent comments made that were really dismissive of those who struggle with their faith in the church and who consider stepping away or who have stepped away. And, and I think what you're hitting at is we, we should not be dismissive. That, that these are really deep and painful struggles 
and that really the best thing we can do is to put, around, put an arm around these folks and, as you point out, to mourn with them. And, uh, and, and I just I'm, – I'm a little emotional at the moment because I'm really saddened mm-hmm. that, um, that those folks that I lean on the most to kind of carry me through this and to, to be Christ-like towards me, there's times where we're dismissive and it really isn't the appropriate answer. Yeah. No, I, I I hear you. It's it's hard, and and you know I I think we're we're all just struggling to to get through this, and b- because we, um, you know, the the that we love the church so much, that we love the gospel so much, I I think a lot of leaders are feeling really frustrated because. I, I suspect that sometimes they feel like no matter how hard they try and how empathetic they try to be and how generous they try to be that then somebody just slaps it back in their face or, you know, kind of, um, just as completely dismissive or scornful or what, at whatever attempts at ministry they have. Um, and so it's only hu- human, I think, to, to get frustrated and to, to sometimes uh, you know, to, to speak out of that frustration. And, uh, I, I think we're, we're all just struggling, um, to, to get through this together. So, you know, that's why, um, and, and, and I do think, look, like any human relationship or set of relationships, there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, heaven knows you go on the internet and you read the kinds of things that, that people are saying who have left the church about church leaders, um, you know, the kind of vile things that, that, that passes for internet comments, usually anonymous, but not always. Um, you know, uh, come on, we can do better than that. And, and the, the same is true for, for those who are in the church, that the kind of sometimes that the ways that they talk, about people who are struggling or who who have left or who are leaving, we we can probably do better than that too. So we can do better all the way around. Um, it's a gospel of repentance and forgiveness, and we we just can't ever stop doing that. Um, but but my goodness, uh, a lot of people are getting hurt in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I know that in the church in the church we talk about the mistakes we've made. Very abstractly, Elder Uchtdorf gets up a few years ago and he says, "You know, some you know leaders may have made mistakes, mm-hmm. and and the may kind of leaves a loophole, right? <laughs> and and you know these mistakes may have violated doctrine, it, and it feels really. And I know leaders have even spoken this directly, right? Like we've got leaders on the record saying, like, even if the criticism's true, we should pretty much stay away from it. And yet, if we look at our history, and, and I'll just give one example." The brethren today, they tell us that when all 15 of them are on the same page, we can trust that to be the mind and will of God. And yet those exact same leaders tell us that the prophet seers and revelators, all 15 men from the 1940s, thought they had inspired answers from Revelation on why why certain people were prohibited from priesthood and from saving ordinances. And today's leaders essentially say those past leaders were wrong. We disavow the ideas that they, that they put out. 
and I'm not talking about the band, right? I mean, th- mm-hmm. that seems like the church is really kind of wanting to be ambiguous about the band itself. They they don't really want to say we don't know. They really don't want to say that you know it wasn't from God or it was from God. They just kind of don't want to touch it. But the theories behind the band, the brethren have said, look, we got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And and those brethren back in the 40s were adamant that that wasn't theories. Those that was God's doctrine. I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think we ever get to a place? Where our leaders can stand up and say, you know, yeah, in that instance, we really got it wrong and we're sorry. Because it, it feels like as a culture, we're kind of at this point where we say, look, we just don't apologize for this kind of stuff. And, and yet me and everybody else out there who's struggling, we really need to hear the church say we're sorry, they're sorry when they mess up. And, and I'm part of the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things I did 15 years ago that I spread folklore that hurt people and marginalized people. And I'm I'm guilty for that, and I'm I'm happy to stand out front and say I am deeply sorry for the people I hurt. Do you think we ever get to a place where the church is willing to do that? Yeah, I mean, heaven knows how many people on my mission that I lied to simply because I didn't know any better, right? You know, I mean, no, Joseph Smith never was a money digger, you know, all all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, I, in answer to your question, I think yes, Uh, I I have full confidence that we're going to get there as a church and as a people to where we can expressly and explicitly disavow and apologize and repent for sins that we've committed collectively in our past. Uh, I think it's uh, the fact that it's hard for us to do that uh, and historically has been hard for us to do that speaks to the crisis of confidence, the continuing crisis of confidence that I think we've had as a people for, for nearly 200 years. I mean, um, I, I really do see this as, you know, w- when you feel threatened, when you feel victimized, it's really hard to say sorry because you just feel like you're going to get beat up even more and you feel like you're going to look worse. And, and so, when when you're in a circle the wagons mentality, uh, which we have been in uh, ever since oh 1830 or so, but w- w- when you're in that place as as a people, it's really hard to to admit that that you've done anything wrong because it seems to be giving aid and comfort to the enemy. It seems to admit that somebody else was right or or that somehow, you know, we have. Uh, I talk about this in the book. I mean, we we've uh, unfortunately. Uh, from the very early years of the church, we've conflated truth with perfection. We've somehow uh, come to believe that the church must some, somehow be tr- uh, perfect in order to be true, that our prophets must be perfect in order to be true true prophets. I mean, nothing could be scripturally or theologically further from the truth. Otherwise, what's the point of the atonement? And, and so... I, I, I don't see this – I mean, for, for me, I just see this as, as a kind of psychological and sociological uh, phenomenon. I, uh, I don't see this occurring out of meanness. I don't see it um, – it, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's a feeling that, that if we admit to anything, then, then boy, we just open it up to, to our enemies to, to, to come and, and make hay. And, and at some point – Hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll have the kind of confidence. Can we at least start with Mountain Meadows, 
right? <laughs> you know, can can we at least apologize right. officially for right. that? Can can we say that was the single worst day in our history? That was a horrific example, not just of bad decision making or something. It was sin, flat out. It was the worst day in our history. Horrible. One of the worst days in the history of the American West, right? And um, can can we just come out and say that and then do what it takes to repent of that? You can't fully repent until you've admitted that you've sinned. And so um, we're, we're going to get there. I've, I have full confidence that we're going to. And, and when we do, that's going to be a more mature and more confident Mormonism um, that I'll be very happy to be a part of. Yeah, and, and it feels like I don't want to. I don't want to go off on a tangent on the November policy, but I at least want to say that once we come to grips with the reality that fifteen prophet seers and revelators were wrong in the past, and that present church leadership acknowledges and is the one really officially telling us that then it opens up the door to at least looking inwardly and saying, is it possible, is it just possible that we're making a mistake right now that's hurting somebody? And, and only when we do that kind of inward reflection are we even open to making the necessary changes to stop doing that kind of behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right, of course, that, that once you admit to the fallibility of prophets, uh, then that opens up the possibility that anything they say or do is fallible. And this is obviously why we've been very sensitive and hesitant to go there, um, even though we all know it. I mean, you know, you read the scriptures. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think intellectually every member of the church knows that, that, that prophets are human beings and that they're fallible and that they can and have made mistakes. It's hard to say that. It's hard to admit that because of the slippery slope argument. And this is, again, where 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 people just rush into this and you know if you're you know first day of a philosophy 101 class they'll tell you, tell you that slippery slope arguments are bad arguments but we just rush into this that that if we admit that prophets are ever fallible or can be fallible and are fallible then they must be wrong all the time i mean that that's just not true it doesn't follow but that's the way or just or just when they disagree with me exactly right, right. and right. and so one of the tasks before us in this century, and I think we have to do it this century because I don't think we can wait much longer to do it, given all, all that's facing us. We have to come up with a better theology of prophets. We have to do it. Uh, I, I think it's one of the most pressing things before us. We have to, because in Mormonism, we do not want to give up on the claim that God calls prophets in modern days. I mean, that's about as central as it gets to Mormonism. If we give that up, then, hey, let's all go be Methodists or something like that, right? I mean, that we have to be able to make a strong claim that God is speaking in the world today, that he does so through special, through ordinary people to whom he gives a special calling. And do we understand why? No. Are they always paragons of virtue? No. Go read the scriptures, right? But but that somehow, in some way, God reaches down and touches certain people with a certain kind of grace and calls them to speak for him in some way. And we have to think about what does that mean, that they speak in his name and in his voice. And at the same time, they are ordinary, fallible human beings. And so how do we 
hold on to the obvious fact that they're fallible without giving up on this very precious gift of a claim that God calls prophets in our day. How do we do that? I don't think we've fully worked through that yet. I don't think I've fully worked through that yet. I just think we haven't done the theological work that has to be done. And we can't let anybody else do this for us. Methodists aren't, you know, I, I, I love Catholic theology. I love Methodist theology. I mean, you know, Anabaptists, all kind of stuff. On this one, we're on our own. Because nobody else makes the kinds of claims that we make. We have to do this work ourselves. And um, we have to do it individually, but this is also why I'm grateful that we have theologians uh, that are emerging in the church. Um, and and so we have to do this work together. I love it. I love it, Patrick. I could listen to that answer over and over. And, and I agree with you that we have to do this way sooner than later because there are so many things that are just lying ahead in terms of paths we're going down and and you know the number of people that are, are struggling and people who are beginning to kind of wake up to the reality that that prophets don't always get it right it, it just is we're kind of in a sense forced to take care of it really quick yeah. um, and, and I love that I really do appreciate that and I think that I think that we need to hear that and and I, I know that it certainly can be done with 52 gentle general conference talks. But that's another, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 <laughs> years when there's one talk every conference that dresses an issue. It really needs to be one or two to the point dynamic talks where we say, look, this is the way we framed it in the past, but we have to make some adjustments how, in, in how we understand this. And I, I, I hope you see it that way too. I, I, I feel like that something said in general conference goes way further than something in the new era. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I completely agree. At the same time, um, I can't dictate what's going to happen in, in Salt Lake. You know, I mean, that, sure, that's, sure. that's so far out of my reach. Um, so while I can hope and expect and, 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 and pray for, for, for that, um, I also can't count on it. Um, and so in the meantime, th- this is one of the other great gifts of, of Mormonism is, is that we're all called on to work out our own salvation and, um, and that, that we're each called on to, to be theologians. And so, uh, so, so I think we sometimes we, um, there's no doubt that the authority structure of the church means that that Salt Lake really, really matters, right? Uh, and 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 what happens at general conference? No stake president's going to make change. No stake president's right. going to make fix this. No bishop's going to fix this. And I'm certainly yeah. Not none of us are going to fix it for the whole church, right? And and actually, maybe a single apostle couldn't even fix it for the whole church, right? I mean, and, but 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 can I fix it for myself, right? Um, that's that's where we're going to start and of course that's inadequate in a sense that if, if you've come to an understanding yourself and it doesn't square with what you are hearing at church on Sunday it doesn't square with what you hear from general conference as, as, as people continue to give you know rather black and white uh, kinds of messages um, but but if we if we have the courage of our own convictions if we've really come and settled on a way that we've worked this out for ourselves and if we've studied and if we've prayed if we feel the kind of peace of god settle on our hearts um then i think we'll be a little less troubled if if what we hear in the rest of the church doesn't quite square with what the understanding that we've come to is we and and we still Keep hoping uh, for for the redemption of the rest of the church, and also have the humility that you know what sometimes I might be right, I might be wrong, and they might be right. 
um, and I need to change my mind um, when, when I hear messages that are hard for me to hear. So, I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's what Christianity is. It's just a constant process of self-introspection, of, of, of asking myself every single day, every single week, uh, where am I wrong? Where can I get better? Uh, and then also hoping and praying for the redemption of the church as a whole as well. Yeah, and when I read when I read the New Testament and I read the words of Christ, he seems the his it seems like his main priority is to kind of get us all uncomfortable. Yeah. To get the church leaders uncomfortable, to get you and me uncomfortable, and to kind of just say, look, like, you know, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Um, one has to lose oneself to find oneself. There's just all of those kinds of things that go on within Jesus' vernacular and his language and, and the things that he's teaching, things that he's saying that that kind of impose on all of us to kind of look inward and say, am I doing something the wrong way? Is, is there something I could do better? And I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head. I, I'm guilty of this myself. I think on every instance of these these issues that I'm right on the direction the church should take and the brethren sooner or later will come around mm-hmm. to it. But part of that is me realizing and being humble enough to say I might be wrong too. And and so I appreciate you pointing that out because I think all of us as doubters in the church need to come to grips that there's probably at least one thing in our mind that we think is being handled incorrectly that the brethren are actually doing right and we're the ones who need to make an adjustment. And, and so I really appreciate you and, pointing and, that and out. And the thing is we never know when we're wrong, right? I, I mean, no, this, this, not until long this, after This is probably. human psychology. And so this, this is why um, – uh, those 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 virtues of faith, hope, charity, uh, and I'd throw humility in there too, are so important. Not just projecting them on other people. Boy, I really wish that he had more charity, right? I really wish that that leader of the church had more charity to me. But what does it mean for for me to do that and and to walk with the uh, a kind of trust and confidence that we're all wrong together? You know, and and this this is why we all need uh, the redemption and reconciliation offered through Jesus, um, because uh, we could all be making a whole ton of mistakes that that, that we we can't even recognize because we're just swimming in it. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I want to I know I'm keeping you maybe a little longer. I want to try to wrap up here with a few more questions. I know in the book and I and I think, again, I'm not placing any blame on your shoulders I think you give the only answer that we can give, but you talk in the book about how men in the church have these prescribed things that they can do that the church assigns to them to do, and it and it gives them the ability to stand out front and to be seen and to be appreciated and to um, receive accolades and acknowledgement for their effort. And the sisters don't really have near as much of that. And you make the suggestion in the book that that maybe in the ward or in the stake, these bishops, these stake presidents could come up with ways because there is some flexibility in the stewardship they have to be creative and to come up with ideas that are outside what other wards or stakes are doing. You suggest coming up with ways to make the visibility of the sisters greater. And I just want to throw this out at you. Again, I'm not blaming you. I just want to, I want to hear you kind of talk about this, but it seems like that in and of itself says the system's flawed because some bishops and stake presidents simply aren't going to be creative. Mm-hmm. Some leaders simply aren't going to go anywhere outside of what the handbook says they have to do. And and so in some ways we're kind of like – we have like a different bar for both genders. In terms of this, is there any – maybe any thoughts you have in, in terms of – do you see like us getting to a place where we come up with – and I'm not, I'm not going down the ordained women mm-hmm. path where I'm saying like they have to have priesthood and this is what it's got to look like. 
what I'm saying is that do you think we have to get to a place where we give them something, something that is complementary and, and gives them the same amount of visibility that the, that the men have in the wards and stakes. Yeah, well, I, I think absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, this is another one of the challenges that faces us right now, immediately. And, and we've seen this, especially in, in, in recent years. Of, of course, you know, uh, women's issues and feminist issues in the church are not brand new. Um, you know, uh, but but there has been a, a kind of fine point that's been put on it over, over the past few years, and and even if, as you say, even if we don't want to go down the ordained women road, um, uh, and and that's kind of a whole different discussion to have, right? Um, so even if we operate within the current uh, understanding of the church that priesthood will be uh, the priesthood ordination in the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood uh, will be bestowed only on men. Uh, and teenage boys, then, um, then how do we, one of the great questions before us is how do we uh, provide more opportunities, not just for visibility, but for, for real leadership and real opportunities for, for spiritual and personal growth, uh, for, for women and young women. And, and we just have to do this. So you're absolutely right that, that there's, men are privileged in the church, full stop. They're, the, in, in our current, uh, and, uh, the, the, the way things are set up, uh, as long as you say that the priesthood is reserved um, only for one sex uh, and that that priesthood is what qualifies a person for all of the major leadership and administrative capacities within the church, uh, then that sex is privileged. I mean, you, you just cannot get around that. And no matter how much we say about motherhood, no matter how much we say about how innately more spiritual women are and so forth, the fact of the matter is that institutionally and structurally, men are privileged. And so the question before us, as we work within a structure that privileges one sex over the other, is that that puts a tremendous moral burden on the privileged sex from a Christian perspective in which Jesus calls upon leaders to become the servants of all, in which he inverts all the power dynamics and all the power relationships of the way that the world actually works. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. The way that Jesus talks about this and does all of this, it puts a huge moral burden on those who are privileged. And so in the church, this would be men. Overall, this would be uh, middle and upper classes. This would be those of us, every one of us who lives in the United States, every one of us who is white. All these kind of uh, markers of earthly privilege there is a moral burden that comes upon us as Christians in order to come up with creative ways. It, the burden is not on the marginalized or those who are less privileged to come up with creative ways to find a voice. Uh, sure, they, they will and can do this, and this is the history of the world, is, is the people who are less privileged find ways to assert their humanity, their dignity, and their voice. But the moral burden from a Christian perspective is for the leader to become a servant and, and for those who are privileged to find ways in order to uh, to speak to quote unquote the least of these. Now, now I am not saying that women are the least of these or essentializing a kind of sex difference or sex sex imbalance. I'm talking away about the way that the church is, is structured, and so that's the fact of the matter. And so when um, you're right, not all bishops take presidents, general authorities, and so forth are going to do this. But but by not 
finding ways for those who are not given markers of earthly privilege to have full voice and opportunity, um, it means we're not fulfilling our Christian stewardship. Amen. I, uh, so we're talking today with, with Patrick Mason, author of Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. Um, you talk about – there's a section in your book, Patrick, where you talk about maybe kind of like shifting our paradigm of the church in terms of rather than having expected it to be perfect, that maybe we should recognize that, that it being flawed – actually does its job. It almost like sidesteps out of the way and points us to Christ. And, and this is something I've hit on several times in the podcast that that rather than having expected the church to be near perfect, maybe we should recognize that in its deep flaws, it actually does its job, that by being flawed, it forces us to no longer look to it, but rather to walk past it where it's pointing to and to head towards Christ Maybe speak for a moment about the angle you kind of approach that within the book. Yeah, I'd really resonate with exactly what you said. I mean, I, I think we should expect the church to be good uh, uh, and be disappointed when it isn't, to be disappointed with when either the institution or its its members and leaders um, fall short of the kind of moral virtues that that, that we all preach and, and that we all embrace together. So, so I'm not saying we just throw up our hands and say, well, you know, we're all sinners. And so I guess we should just, um, you know, uh, cast aside any expectations of, of improvement and, and moral rectitude. But I do think that um, perfection is an awful burden to expect of, of anybody. And of course we know that, the, that only God and, and, and Jesus meet that, um, meet that burden. And so, uh, and so, just as you said, a recognition that the church is good but not perfect points us to the one who is truly perfect. And the church is here as uh, it is a grace. The, the church is a gift that's given to us by God in order to help point us towards redemption in Christ. Uh, and so all the things that the church does for us in terms of the bestowal of keys, the, um, the exercise of ordinances, uh, the community that it provides for us, the opportunities for service, the preaching, the, um, the, the teaching in the word, the preservation of the scriptures and of the faith of the saints, all these wonderful things that the church does. All of these things are meant to point us to reconciliation and redemption in Jesus. And, uh, and, and in, whenever the church is doing those things, it's doing the work of Jesus. When we participate in the church as it does those things, we are participating in the work of Christ. And that's why we can say the church is good. That's why we can, we can feel good about our participation in it, even when we know, of course, that it's flawed and that it has made mistakes, will continue to make mistakes, and doesn't always do things according to the divine order of heaven. What does the divine order of heaven look like? Heck if I know. Heck if any of us know. I mean, here we are. We're earthbound. Our, our feet are made of clay. But we do the best we can uh, according to the inspiration and revelation that's been given to us, past, present, and future. And so so I do think that, you know, I, I'm a church guy. I mean, I, I just absolutely – I have found Jesus – in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I mean, I found him lots of other places, too. As I said, I read pretty widely in, in theology and other places and in life experiences. But in terms of, of where I have been most deeply shaped 
and the things and the people and the relationships that have most profoundly pointed me to Jesus Christ, for me, that's been in Mormonism. And so that's it, it's earned my trust. It has earned my loyalty. It's earned my confidence. Complete confidence, no, because I only give that to God. Complete trust, no, I only place that in in, in redemption and, and in Jesus Christ. But uh, as far as any earthly institution goes, um, it's it's earned those things of me. And and that I participate, I continue. I think we're called to continue to work for the improvement of of the church. Uh, and so even as it perfects us, we work for the perfecting of the body of the saints. Right, that it will be satisfied, but that we shouldn't be, that we shouldn't settle. No, never, um, never. Nor should we just think like because it does a few things not quite so good that it isn't good generally. And I think I think a lot of people when we when we run into a faith crisis or lose faith in the church, however you want to word it, there's a tendency to kind of see everything through through that lens and to see everything as a negative. And, and I agree with you. There's a lot of good in the church. And that's why I hang around, Patrick. I, I keep holding out that this is going to get better. The things that, that I'm bothered by are going to get better. And because generally speaking, I love Mormonism and I love the church and I don't want to go somewhere else. Um, and, and, and the church has in some ways set itself up with, with these very lofty expectations that then get, get broken when, when the church of course, fails to meet those, that standard of perfection, um, either in its past or in, or in the present. Um, and so when we talk in, in absolutist language, um, when we make it seem like this is the only place of virtue and morality and that, and that you're going to find perfection here, even when we imply that with a kind of wink-wink, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and for failure. And so, so I, do, I do think, you know, uh, you know, for all those people who have felt like the church has let them down because it hasn't lived up to the standards it has set for themselves, uh, for itself, they're not necessarily wrong because, because a lot of the, the rhetoric in the church has set a bar that is impossible for the church to meet, at least on this side of the millennium. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have a chapter in your book titled Principled Approach to Mormonism. And, and I just want to give you a few minutes to kind of hit on that because the way that we who are struggling approach, approach the church, you're kind of giving us maybe a different way to do that in this chapter and, and maybe just shifting us just a little bit so that we can kind of see this from a different angle. Would you talk for just a moment about that chapter in your book? Yeah, and, and this is where, you know, kind of this section of my book is where I'm trying to bring to bear some of my professional training as a historian. I, you know, we, we all bring different gifts to the table. We all have different uh, skills and, and perspectives. And, and for me, I'm, I'm a historian. That's just who I am. And so, so in, in these, these chapters, that's what I'm trying to bring. And maybe a different way of looking at church history that I think is informed both by my reading of scriptures but also by um, uh, by my training as a historian, and so so just a few of the principles that I talk about in in this chapter, and this is really kind of an approach to church history. I, th- I think it can also apply to to current issues in the church, but it was written exp- and and I thought about it explicitly as an approach to issues in church history that trip up a lot of people, whether it be Joseph Smith and seer stones, or polygamy, or Mountain Meadows, or you know go go down the list. And so the the principles that I talk about are are first of all we tell the truth. I mean, 
this just um, we believe in, in in the truth. We believe in being honest. Uh, you know, this is one of the Ten Commandments, and and we we gain nothing. I'm convinced by not telling the truth. And and I know that of of course there have been statements in the past by some church leaders who say that the not all things that are true are useful. And to to me, I understand where they're coming from. I you know when you read them in context, again, it, part of this deals with this this kind of confidence, and we open ourselves up for critique. But I just think that, that we have nothing to lose for for being for telling the truth. Uh, for me, in Mormonism, we're in the truth business. And so I think we have a duty to do our level best to understand the facts, to present them the best that we understand them, uh, that, that we can apprehend them. Do we ever know the whole story? No, especially when look, we look at the past. We never know everything we want to know. Um, historical research is always imperfect and inexact because we just don't – we can't get into people's hearts and minds. Even if we can read their diary, we cannot get into their hearts and minds. But the best we can – uh, we, we tell the truth. And, and that goes with the second principle, which is to do our homework. I, uh, you know, one of the things that frustrates me sometimes is that, um, in the church, uh, <laughs> we've become very good at making pronouncements about stuff that we really have no idea about. I mean, you hear this in church all the time from the pulpit, you know, Sunday school lessons, all this kind of stuff that people are talking about stuff that they really don't know what they're talking about. Um, whether it be historical issues or, or scriptural issues or doctrinal issues, no matter what it is. And, and so we just have, if we're going to tell the truth, we have to do our homework. We have to put in the hard work of study and research. I mean, the Lord says, study it out in your minds. I mean, he, you know, by, by learning and, and by faith, by study and by faith. And so I think, I think God is serious about that. We have the gift of intellect. We're expected to apply it. And that means doing our research that, that, um, again, I, without disparaging anybody, I am dismayed sometimes with people who, uh, very casually come across something on the internet um, that uh, that seems to trouble their understanding of, of church history and that kind of one thing they read one thing and, and then they're gone and, and they throw away everything um, I think that your spiritual commitments and your spiritual life uh, demand a little bit more of you in, in terms of putting in the, the time and effort to understand and to read all sides. I'm, I'm not talking about just reading one side or just apologetics. Read all sides. Again, we're not afraid of the, of the truth, and, and so do your homework. You know, I talk about the, the past as a foreign country. This is, this is a, a kind of a mantra for historians that, that when we go into the past – we just have to expect that people are different there. They had different assumptions. They, they operated in a different culture. We cannot expect that they operate and or have the same kinds of um, cultural assumptions and knowledge that we do in 2016. And so when we go to the 19th century and find out that everybody was racist, you know, um, there's that we, we don't give them a pass. I, I don't think we, we never excuse sin. Uh, but at the same time, we we. There's a kind of charity and generosity that we bring um, as we understand people in their own context because part of that comes back to uh, as we look at ourselves. People 100, 100 years from now, 200 years from now are going to look at us and say, they were doing what? Are you kidding me? They, they thought this was right? You know, they, they organized their society in this way? What, what were they thinking? Whereas for us, it's just second nature. We don't even question it. So it's um, so I think we have to approach the past in, in that way. Um, 
another principle is that is this what Jesus says? There's none good but God. And you know, Paul says all have fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, and and we just have to recognize sin as a pervasive and controlling factor in human history and human behavior. Again, we don't have to excuse it, but we have to recognize it and uh, and and just understand that that, that sin is always present. Um, we can call it what it is. We can call a spade a spade, but. But we don't have to be surprised by it. We don't have to act surprised that our pioneer ancestors uh, were not perfect and that they sinned sometimes. Um, of course they did because they're human. And and then I, and then I talk about learning the lessons of history. And this is this is where I'm really kind of putting on my historian's hat. And uh, heaven knows I, I don't think everybody should be a professional historian. Um, uh, the world would be a horrible place. We wouldn't get anything done. But uh, but but those of us who are professional historians have learned some lessons that I think can be helpful to other people as they look at the past. And and partly this is. Uh, learning to deal with ambiguity, learning to to have the kind of humility that we don't always have all the facts at our disposal, um, learning to be comfortable with um, a kind of cultural relativity that there is not one standard um, that all people through all time have adhered to, and um, so that there's there's a certain kind of uh, flexibility, which hopefully leads to generosity and charity, that is at the heart of the historical enterprise. And so I think thinking like a historian helps. And and re- then really that chapter leads into my chapter on prophetic fallibility, which I think is, is essential. And then for me, the overarching principle for all of this is Jesus' teaching to abide in the vine, that all of our teaching, all of our thinking about church history or the church right now, if we're not connected to the work of Jesus and and the atonement of Christ, then um, it's bound to be lifeless. It's bound to be dead. And so we just have to connect all of our stories, all of our thinking, all of our theology, all of our practice um, to a vibrant life in, in Jesus Christ. So those, those are the basic principles that I try to lay out in the book. Beautiful, beautiful, Patrick. Two more questions, and then I want to get you back, because I know you want to write this book that you're going to write for all the members in the ward. Uh, rather than the doubter, the other folks in the ward, I'm going to buy the first 25 copies of that book. Um, so, so when you get <laughs> well, that, that well, one that's, going. That's what, that's what this book is supposed to be. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it does that, and I think this is a great book for both the person struggling as well as the the sibling or the parent or the bishop to understand what that person's going through. I, I, I want to get away for a moment from some of these specific things we're talking about. I just want to, I want to get more to just maybe a question about you and how you handle some of this personally. Mm-hmm. You say that you haven't had a, a faith crisis in this way but you're a smart guy. I know having heard you speak and having read, you know, this book and other things you've written that you're very aware of the issues that are out there. You're very aware that the evidence isn't always in the church's favor, that you're aware that that maybe the best answer or the most reasonable answer isn't the most faithful answer on some of these issues. How do you personally kind of navigate that? Like how do you how do you just like go along that path and realize that this is messy. There's, there's evidence on both sides. Sometimes on this issue, that side has a better answer. Sometimes on that issue, this side has a better answer without really ever just kind of having your shelf just come down. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. And I'm, I've, I've thought about this a lot. Um, 
I'm, I'm not sure that I can encapsulate it or I, I certainly can't download it for, for anybody else because it's, it's just my experience. It's, it's just who, who I am that, that I've, um, I, I, I do think, you know, I've talked a lot, uh, during our conversation about confidence. And I think in a lot of ways that's what has allowed me to, to deal with this ambiguity um, th- that I've encountered. And, and you're right. I mean, I, you know, my first book is about anti-Mormonism, and I've, I've read a lot of anti-Mormon materials. I collected it on my mission, uh, wrote my dissertation, reading all kinds of 19th century anti-Mormonism. You know, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in the arguments against Mormonism, both past and present. And... Are, are there things that give me pause? Absolutely. Are there things uh, right now in the church that trouble me deeply on a moral and ethical level? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'd be lying if, if I said otherwise. But so what allows me to, to be all in? And I really am all in. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to this thing. And... Um, uh, and I think my eyes are wide open. I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm deluded. I, I don't think um, that I'm operating under false consciousness. I think I know what I'm getting into. And, and again, the arguments pro and, and con. And for me, it's a kind of confidence uh, in my own experience that this has been a place that has been good for my moral formation. It's been a place where I've encountered God. It's, it's been a place where I've seen Christian virtues practiced by, uh, my brothers and sisters around me. And like I said, recently we've been dealing with some family medical stuff in the past month. I've seen that yet again in, in a, in, in a powerful way that I've actually never personally experienced. The, the power of Mormon community that's been able to, to carry me and my family through a, a really a difficult time this this past month, and so those are good things. That's good fruit. And now, can you find that other places? Do Mormons have a monopoly on any of that? No. Do Mormons have a monopoly on an encounter with God? Absolutely not. I do not believe that for a second. Um, I'm I'm my own theology is pretty ecumenical um, in in that sense, but I still think. For me, Mormonism speaks to my heart. It speaks to my soul. And because of that, I have a kind of confidence that when I, when I come to these things, they're hard and difficult and ambiguous and troubling. It's, it's really the, the confidence that is able to, to carry me through that I, that I, maybe I'm naive. I, I mean, I just think I'm an optimist by nature. I'm a glasses half full type guy. I just think we're going to be able to get through this together. Uh, We've got a lot of tough stuff. We've got hard things that we need to do together over the next few decades. And I admit that we might not. I mean, there's a possibility that my church morphs into something that I hope it doesn't become over the next 20, 30, 40 years. I, I admit that's, that's a possibility. If, if certain people, if certain leaders, if the church as a whole, decides to go a certain route, it could end up in a place that I would not be comfortable with it theologically, socially, culturally. But I don't think we're going to do that. I feel um, I feel the work of the Spirit in this church, and I feel us moving towards a fuller and richer Christianity. 
And for me, it's exciting. I want to be part of it, and uh, I want to contribute to it. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff that that's hard, uh, but for me, it's it's acting with a kind of confidence that I can uh, that I can move through this, and we can do it together. Awesome. And I just told somebody today. I think what you were just speaking to is this ability to live in that tension. Yeah. To know that there's some things that aren't right, there's other things that are going great, and to just just to kind of swim in that without it really just rocking you too far one way or the other. I mean, I feel in some ways the, the same way about the United States. I mean, for crying out loud, our country's a mess right now. Um, but, but, what are you but, voting for, Patrick? <laughs> uh, uh, it doesn't rhyme with drump. Um, uh, but uh, – but, but the underlying principles are sound, right? Now, I do think the church is different than the nation. That's a problem we've had sometimes, too, is uh, sacralizing the nation. And, and I have a problem with some of the ways that, that nationalism has crept into our theology. That's a different discussion as well. But, 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 you know, we're all part of institutions that are imperfect, but we stick with because we believe in, in the kind of underlying core. Now, we, we don't think the Mormonism, we don't think the church is just another institution. We don't think that it's just like our bowling league or our place of employment or even the, the nation that, that we have citizenship. And we, we think it's special and we think that it's called by God to do something else and that it even has a, has a kind of salvific role even in, in the next life. So I admit that there's more at stake here than with my other associations. But some of the same principles are true. I mean, I, I just don't give up on stuff because I find it flawed i mean i, I I'm, I'm i'm called to to make it better where i'm at and this is also where this christian virtue of hope comes in uh i have hope in the redeeming work of christ not just in my life and in your life but in the life of the church beautiful beautiful let's wrap up i, I know i've kept you a little longer than i told you i would i i just i think these questions are so important and and your answers have been just so deep and profound and and I think this is going to be helpful to a lot of people. If nothing else, I think this has come off as an episode that, that those who are struggling could share with those around them. Everything you've said has been faithful, and yet yet you're calling us to just be better listeners and, and to at least be open to making progress. And, and if that means we have to make some changes, then then so be it. If that means we treat people better and, and we do things that would be more Christ-like within how we live our faith. I want to wrap up. I've got a, a good friend of mine who knew that I was going to be interviewing you tonight. And, and I'm going to read his question. I hope I, I you know, put the emphasis in the right places. But here's, here's the question he wanted to throw at you. Um, he, says, <clears throat> he says, what recommendation would you make? And, and, and I guess I want, to, I want to just frame this question. Is if you're, you're, you know, this is the last chance you're speaking to those who are struggling, mm-hmm. and he's one of them. And he says, What recommendation would you make to someone that has a nuanced view of the church? I've got a nuanced view of the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I've got a, I've got a, a difference of opinion on Section 132 in polygamy. Um, I disagree with the recent policy change in November. Um, I, I know less today than I knew 10 years ago. I now am only hoping and believing and in some places having faith. But I'm striving, and and I want to be authentic to the rest of my ward. But I'm also I'm also to some extent barely hanging on. Um, any thoughts to that person that that obviously has been on your mind as you wrote this book? Yeah, I mean, f- first of all, I mean, just to, to empathize with with his his struggles and what what he's going through. I mean, these are. 
these are tough issues. These are difficult issues. Any one of those things, Book of Mormon, Section 132 and polygamy, uh, the, the church's policies about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, um, all of these deserve a long uh, conversation and sometimes silence and um, uh, for, for us to work through this together. And and so, so, so first of all, just just my heart goes out to him. And but but what I love about what he says is is the kind of striving and the desire. And for me, I think the scriptures make this pretty clear that that's enough. Um, that uh, this is somebody who recently wrote me. Um, about the book, who had read the book and, and appreciated, he, he says, "I don't like the language of faith crisis or faith transition or you know various other things. I I feel like it's faith remodeling, and and I kind of like that uh, term, and and I think we have to remodel all through our lives. We one of my fears for Mormonism, one of the things that I see all too often, is a kind of juvenilization or EFYification of our religion. That it's it's as if everything you needed to know about Mormonism you learned by the time you were 17, and uh, and that's just not true. And the the Mormon house that you built or that was built for you in primary is not sufficient. The Mormon house that you built or that was built for you and young men's and young women's is not sufficient. And we've got to remodel. And 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 all of our houses are going to look a little bit different. And I think there are going to be some common things that tie us together because we call each other Mormons, right? And we're not Catholic. We're not Buddhist. We're not other things. So those of us who call ourselves Latter-day Saints will have certain core characteristics about our floor plans and our blueprints, but our houses are all going to look a little different, and those houses are going to undergo renovation and remodeling throughout our life. They just have to because our lives change over time. If not, then things get stale, things get old, and and the, the house starts to get dilapidated. I mean, we just have to keep it refreshed and renewed and keep working on it. And so the striving is so important. And what what I would say is that if you have felt Jesus in this church, if you have felt the work of Christ in this community of people that calls itself saints aspirationally, and sometimes we actually meet that mark, um, then it's worth, I think it's worth sticking with. I, um that that this is a place where we can learn Christian virtues, and it's it's a place that's going to be hard for a lot of people week in week out. That there are going to be sacrament meetings where you not only don't hear anything of value, but then in fact that that you come out fuming and offended and. Or, or spiritually dead. I think that's one of our biggest challenges. I think most people, a lot of people, are just bored to death. But, but if you've felt it at some point, if if this is a place that is called to you, that is spoken to you, if you think it's worth striving for, then I just think that it's that it's worth that you know, kind of keeping on. That as Gene England said, you know, the, how many meetings would he trade? How many boring meetings would he trade for, for that kind of one moment of grace? You know, how many church assignments would you endure to, to have one moment of true discipleship where you understand what it's like to be a Christian? 
I think the church gives us those opportunities. It also gives us plenty of opportunities to forgive. And I think it's worth sticking with. I know that some people just can't do it, that, that their sense of integrity and authenticity just means that, that, that they can't. They've got to step away. And, and all I can do is acknowledge that pain and the authenticity of that position. But I hope they can keep a door open and I hope the church can keep a door open. Um, because if we're going to do this, if we're going to get better as a people, if we're going to be redeemed together, uh, if we're going to move towards Zion, which is our highest ideal, we need everybody. And so, so the strivers, the doubters, the true believers, we need them all. And uh, so I just hope we can create a place where everybody can seek Jesus together. Awesome. Patrick Mason, thank you so much. Uh, again, Patrick Mason, the author of Planted Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you.